Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, ladies. Hi, Diana. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Yael. <laughs> All three of us are here. All three of us. And I am I am so thrilled to have you listen to the interview that I did with Russell Colts today because he wrote the book, uh, Experiencing Compassion-Focused Therapy from the Inside Out. And it is a resource for therapists to learn compassion-focused therapy by applying it to themselves in their own lives. And then translate that into their work clinically. And I think that this is uh, really cutting edge in, in therapist training because I'm a big believer as a therapist in looking at some of the principles and processes that we're teaching for ourselves and experiencing them ourselves before we use them uh, with our clients. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that this podcast is sort of a, a really similar, has a really similar idea to what you're describing because, you know, we're very explicitly interested in some of the ideas uh, that are out there and in figuring out, like, you know, what are the ways that we apply those in our own lives to flourish and do better and, and therefore how can we ex- export those to our audience so that they can uptake some of those ideas and use them to better their own lives. Yeah. You know, and when, when you're talking about that, was, this sounds so helpful, this this workbook that he's offering. Um, I was thinking about my own clinical approach tends to be mostly drawn from acceptance and commitment therapy act, as we call it. Um, and one of the reasons I was really drawn to it is because I found it so personally helpful in my own life. I mean, it just more than any other approach I've learned about, I just you know, it just fit resonated so much with my life and my experience. And, um, and I think by practicing some of these principles in my own life and having experience with, you know, acceptance and willingness and values um, that I have really been able to work better with my clients because it makes that experiential sense to me. Great. Yeah. How about you, Diana? Well, I, again, I, I, I tend to teach things better if I've learned it myself and uh-huh. in, in every arena of my life, whether it's in teaching yoga or in teaching my kids how to cook or, you know, whatever. So I definitely like this model of learning about processes and therapy. And I think that all therapists would really benefit from listening to this interview with Dr. Colts. It's fantastic. And I'm really enamored by compassion focused therapy as well. So take a listen. I think that you'll enjoy. Russell Colts is a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Eastern Washington University, where he has taught for the past 18 years and has received numerous awards, including twice being named the Associated Student Body's Faculty of the Year. An internationally recognized trainer in compassion-focused therapy, or CFT, Colts has authored or co-authored numerous books and scholarly articles on compassion and CFT, including CFT Made Simple, 
The Compassionate Mind Guide to Managing Your Anger, and his new workbook, Experiencing Compassion-Focused Therapy from the Inside Out. An internationally recognized expert in CFT, he regularly conducts trainings and workshops on compassion and CFT, and has appeared in his own TEDx talk entitled Anger, Compassion, and What It Means to Be Strong. Welcome, Dr. Colts. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm really pleased to talk with you today, and it was wonderful to meet you at the Compassionate Mind Retreat and Summit and follow up with you. I would love for maybe just you to start telling us a little bit about how you came to working in the area of compassion. Well, you know, to, to try and make a fairly long story short, there was a period of several years um, between, say, 2005, 2006, and 2009 in which I did, I took sort of a deep dive into Tibetan Buddhism. I had wanted to to work with uh, some some of my own actually issues around anger and irritability and things like that. And I had just read uh, a book uh, about the Dalai Lama, and it kind of piqued my interest. And so I spent several years um, reading lots of books on Buddhism and going to retreats and doing you know an hour of meditation and practice in the morning and the evening. And I, I just really poured myself into that. And then after about three years, I kind of stepped back and reflected on that period of my life. And I, I noticed two things. The, the one, the first thing was that my life had really been transformed in uh, a lot of the ways I'd really hoped that it would be. And the second was that the of all the practices and the things that I had done over the last several years, the ones that really stood out to me as being transformative for me were um, the compassion practices. So I, I got to this kind of interesting spot in my professional work as a psychologist where I had this feeling that I really needed to find a way to, to bring these practices that have been so helpful for me into my work with my clients. Now, I'm no great scientist, but I'm enough of a scientist to feel sort of uncomfortable just sort of reaching into a spiritual tradition and plucking out practices or exercises or things like this and then plopping them down in the therapy room. I, I wasn't really comfortable with that. So at that point, I started looking to see um, if anyone else had, had tried to do that. I, it occurred to me that I probably wasn't the only person who had ever had this realization that probably bringing compassion into the therapy room in a very overt sense would be helpful. And that led me in sort of a roundabout way to Paul Gilbert. Mm -hmm. I actually saw him. I think he was referenced in a book by Jack Cornfield called The Wise Heart. And I, I reached out to Paul and, and just to kind of see what he was going on, what he was doing, what was going on, you know. And he invited me over to a CFT training. This is about 2008, 2009. And that's really where it clicked for me. I was at that training and, you know, I've come to recognize the feeling of a piece of my life clicking into place. And that's really the experience I had there. It was a real sense of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And that's where Paul Gilbert really maps the science and the science of psychology onto some of these contemplative practices. Can you describe a bit about what CFT is and, and what it looks like in the therapy room as well as some of the science behind it? Absolutely. But, you know, I tend to think of compassion-focused therapy as less another kind of model of therapy. I mean, although it is, in, in a sense, that, but less a, 
like a, a CBT or a DBT or that sort of thing um, in terms of being based on a specific theory of mind. I see it being less of that and more an attempt to build a way of, of helping people, of doing psychotherapy out of what the varied bodies of science have to tell us about what it means to have a human life and how we can be tripped up and then what we can do uh, to help with that. And so CFT draws from uh, a fairly widely varied uh, body of science, so evolutionary science uh, and evolutionary psychology, uh, affective neuroscience, right? what, what the neuroscience research has to tell us about emotions and how they work in the brain, uh, the attachment literature, and of course, contextual behavioral science as well. So CFT really draws from all of those. And really, when you look at what these varied bodies of science have to say about what it means to have a human life, what you discover is that have, being a human, being a mentally, emotionally healthy human being is actually a tricky business. The way we've evolved and the way our brains work and the way we're powerfully shaped by social forces that we don't get to choose or design creates a lot of kind of unique problems for us as a species. And the idea really is that, you know, compassion, when you really look at what it's like to have a human life, compassion is really the only response that makes sense. That actually there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that is inherent to having a human life. And so much of that has to do with factors that we don't get to choose or design. Right, the way evolution shaped our brain and the way our brains work and the reality of how emotions play out in us and then how all these social factors we don't choose shape us and all these ways we don't get to design. And we get to deal with all of that. So one of the things that, that Paul Gilbert says quite a lot, uh, he, he uses the phrase, not your fault, quite a lot. And this idea behind not your fault is, is that it's not helpful for us to blame, shame and attack ourselves for things we didn't choose or processes we didn't design. And when we stop doing that, when we stop attacking ourselves and shaming ourselves or others, then it frees us up to take responsibility for the struggles we're having and then to, to take a step forward and to ask, okay, given this, given that this is what my experience is, what would be helpful? Right? What would be helpful as I work with this? And so in doing that, it, it helps us uh, assist our clients in overcoming, I think, some of the primary obstacles that present themselves in psychotherapy. And one of those primary obstacles is shame. It's this idea that people observe their distress or their struggles or the things they have difficulties with, and they think that this means there's something wrong with me, right? This means that I'm bad or there's something bad about me. And that just freezes people in their tracks. It's a deeply painful human experience and it is, a, I think, a, a primary uh, prompt for avoidance behavior. So, for example, people who are struggling with problematic anger, if they're going to do anything about that, the first thing they need to do is to accept that, hey, I struggle with anger and I need some help. But to do that, a lot of times with anger means that you have to come face to face with the reality that a lot of the time you do things that are deeply hurtful to people that you really care about. And that's not fun to acknowledge or to admit to yourself much easier when that shame starts to emerge to cover it up or to avoid it by, for example, blaming the other person, right? I only talk to you like that because you did this or 
or to rationalize or simply, you know, distract ourselves, turn on Netflix and pretend it didn't happen. But none of that gets us any closer to doing any better, to handling our anger any better or to healing our relationships. So this is actually an observation that was core to the development of CFT. Paul Gilbert, when he began to develop compassion-focused therapy in the very beginning, uh, it was really as a result of the work he'd done applying cognitive behavioral therapy to people with depression and his observations of the, the groups of patients who actually didn't get better. So, so that was really one of the, the basic observations that provides the foundation for, for why Paul Gilbert developed CBT or CFT in the first place. He had been doing cognitive behavior therapy with depressed clients and had observed that although these kind of empirically based CBT strategies were helpful to a number of people, there were quite a few clients actually that it didn't seem to benefit that they, you know, they could go through it and they could say, well, I've identified all these thoughts that are not helpful and I've gathered evidence and I've, you know, come up with evidence-based alternative thoughts, just like you worked with me on, and I don't feel any better. And what Paul had observed is that when he looked across these particular patients, that across them, they seemed to almost universally have deep experiences of shame and self-attacking and self-criticism. That seemed to be the common factor that kind of contributed to them not being able to, to benefit from other treatment methods that seem to help lots of other people. And so Paul really uh, drawing upon his own kind of widely varied scientific background, started trying to come up with ways to help these people. Right. And it, it seems that, that, so there's the foundation of shame, but it's in people that suffer, suffer and struggle with things like depression. What I was also struck by in the workshop that I attended with you and we were working with our critical selves is that we had a whole room full of therapists, psychologists, people that are interested in compassion-focused therapy. And when they were writing out the nature of what their critical mind says, it is extremely harsh. And what their critic selves looked like were things like the devil with a you know pitchfork and uh, you know big blob you know yelling at me. So it, it, that universal uh, concept as well is that it affects all of us that critical self and the. Um, shame as well. Yes, it seems to be fairly ubiquitous in Western culture. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's ubiquitous everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this sort of famous story of the Dalai Lama being, I think it was a a mind and life meeting. And uh, someone apparently asked his holiness, what what do you do with, he was doing a teacher training with Buddhist teachers, apparently. They said, what do you do with that student who just has that just hates themselves, just has this deeply entrenched self-loathing and self-hatred. And his holiness sat there for a moment, and his initial response was, well, you know, that something like, well, you know, that's not really that much of a problem. You know, that doesn't really happen so much. And I think he could tell very quickly from the faces on his Western audience that they just couldn't believe his response. And they're like, I think he picked up that they had a very different experience of life indeed. So he checked them out with that. He said, well, is this, so you really come across these people? And I think their responses from what I've heard were like, yes, we do. And by the way, we have it too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We do it too. And he was just sort of blown away by that. I think initially that's something that if you look at, I guess, in Tibetan culture, at least through his experience, he hadn't seen that much of, but certainly in the West, 
we have that. And it actually, it, it sort of makes sense if you think about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on social commentary here. But if you think one of the things that in, in the States, at least, that we do really well is uh, creating wealth by selling people things, uh, a large proportion of which they don't really need. And if you're going to sell people things, if you're going to try and convince people to buy things that they don't really need, you know, what do you need to do? Well, you kind of have to convince them that there's something wrong with their lives and that, you know, you, whatever it is you're selling is the antidote to that. Yes. Right. So I think I think that that teaches people that 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 sort of implicit and sometimes very explicit message of things aren't OK as they are. You're not all right as you are. You need this to be better. I think it's very easy for us to figure that out just from doing things like watching television. I was just listening to a podcast this morning and there was an advertisement for makeup on it and they were saying, because beauty empowers you. <laughs> right? Exactly. It's that same concept. Like, oh, well then I better buy this thing and I'll become powerful, right? Yeah. 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 You know, you, you don't sell people things they don't need by saying you already have everything you need to be happy. Right. And when we right? access the compassion itself and some of the compassionate imagery, which I'd love for you to talk about, it, it really came down to some some basic core principles of you are enough. You are okay as you know, that those are some of the, yeah. the compassionate mind responses when we access that. So can you speak a little bit to the compassionate self and the compassionate mind and how you access yeah. that CFT? So so you know, there are some therapy models that I think would say that part of part of the goal of what they're trying to do is to uncover somehow find or uncover the person's true self. That under all of this other stuff, there's this one true version of us, and we sort of need to find that. that. And that CFT takes actually a, a very different tact than that. Uh, we, uh, Unless we were to anchor it into awareness itself, I think you'd have a hard time finding a CFT person who would say there's one true self. Um, you know, the acceptance and commitment therapy, people have talk about self as context, which is really anchoring the self to awareness processes. You know, the, the, the part of me that's able to be aware of, of all this stuff that's happening. And I think CFT, uh, you know, would probably agree with that. But what, what, in CFT, what we're more likely to talk about are different versions of the self. Because what happens is if you look at all the different patterns, the things that happen when we're doing things, you're talking about patterns of attention, like like what we pay attention to and how broadly or narrowly we pay attention to it. Uh, thinking and reasoning, right? What we think about and how flexibly or rigid our thought processes are. You know, the mental imagery, the pictures and the words and the movies that go on in our heads. Uh, our motivation, what we want, what we desire, what we're, we're just sort of mo uh, moving or in pursuit of then the patterns of emotional experience, and then our behavior, right? All of those different aspects of, of what we do and who we are um, are highly variable. And all of those can be organized by basic motives and emotional responses. So the version of me that shows up when I'm in a competitive frame of mind, right? So uh, Paul Gilbert talks a lot about social mentalities, and a social mentality you can think of as sort of an, uh, uh, an organizing framework that's organized by an underlying motive that helps to organize the interactions that we have with, with other people and other beings. 
And so let's say I'm at a job and there's a, a supervisory position open. And myself and a, a friend of mine who's another coworker both want this job. We need the money. We want the promotion. We've been waiting a long time to try to advance. Uh, and so I might be in a competitive uh, frame of mind or in, in reference to them, right? A, a competitive mindset. And so you might imagine, for example, that if I'm competing with them for this job, that's going to organize how I pay attention to them and how I think about them and how I imagine them and how I feel about them and how I'm motivated to behave toward them in some very specific ways. On the other hand, let's imagine that there's no job that we're competing for, that we're both just working together as friends. And I discover that this friend of mine that I've worked with for 10 or 15 years has just been diagnosed with cancer. Right. And I, I, I feel really bad for them. And I, I, I'm shifted into what we might call a caregiving mentality or, or mindset in that in that moment when I'm, I'm kind of organized by this caregiving motive, I'm going to pay attention to them and think about them and imagine them and feel about them and be motivated, to behave towards them in an entirely different way. And even my body, my physiological responding when I'm interacting with them and engaging with them is going to be different than if I was coming at it from that competitive mindset. So we can see those are in CFT, we might call those two different versions of the self. Right. There's a competitive self and a caregiving self. And the idea is that that whatever you put there in terms of the basic motive or emotion, anger, loving competitive, defensive, caregiving, compassionate, uh, is, is associated with patterns of, of all those different things we've talked about. They organize our mind and our attention and all those processes, as well as our bodily experience in very distinct ways. And here's the thing. We all have these different versions of the self within us. We're all organized by these patterns. And some of them are are archetypal. Some of them are th these motives we have and these emotions are so basic and they're shared by pretty much all of us and they organize us in these distinct ways. And we all have these versions of us. I can't get rid of the angry version of Russell or the sad version of Russell or the anxious version of me, however much I might want to. And of course, I don't want to, but I couldn't. What I can do though, is I get to choose which versions of me I cultivate and develop. I get to choose which versions of me I send to the gym. And so in compassion-focused therapy, the compassionate self is a version of the self that has particular characteristics. It's a version of the self that is, is very much rooted in that caregiving motivation, the desire to care for others and to care for myself and to be helpful. It's a version of the self that is wise and can, you know, uh, do things like perspective taking and uh, drawing upon various bodies of knowledge and seeing different situ uh, situations from different perspectives and um, look deeply into the causes and conditions behind suffering so we can figure out what would be helpful. It's a version of the self that's kind and courageous and able to, to turn and face suffering and difficulty rather than to turn away from it and avoid it. So what we're trying to do in compassion-focused therapy in large part is to help people connect with this compassionate version of the self that has lots of different competencies as well, things like sympathy and empathy and distress tolerance, 
and to develop, to develop that version of the self, not to get rid of the other ones, right? There's no getting rid of your anger or your sadness. These are all parts of us that we couldn't get rid of as we wanted to. But if we connect with and cultivate that compassionate version, then we begin to see that those other versions of the self, actually, they're not problems. And so for me, in working with my own anger, which, as I talked about in my TEDx talk, is something I'd struggled with for many years, it wasn't about getting rid of my anger, but it was about learning to understand that angry version of me that shows up in particular situations and thinking about what would that version of me need to do better? What would be helpful for him? And, of course, me as a, as a person and as a husband and as a parent help me show up in, in a better way, in a way that's more consistent with my values, that's more compassionate and all of those other things. So um, in compassion-focused therapy, I think it's important to say that the, the compassion and compassion-focused therapy, it's not just a technique or even several techniques that are applied to work with specific problems. It's really about helping people develop and cultivate and strengthen uh, a, a version of the self that really will help them to relate to suffering in really kind of functional, helpful ways. That's, that's really what it's about. And once you have that version of the self as a reference point, then all the different practices, the imagery practices and the breathing and the different things you're doing, they're organized from this compassionate self sort of frame of reference. So there's compassionate behavior and there's compassionate thinking and there's compassionate imagery and all these different ways. It's like when you go to the gym, right? There's not just one weight that you're lifting. There are lots of different weights and lots of different machines that help you develop different parts of your body. So we can think of all the different practices and the compassion practices and the other practices in CFT is lots of different ways of developing this compassionate version of the self. And when you speak of multiple selves, what I have noticed in doing this, just starting to do this more clinically, is that those selves can show up within a person in the same session. So you can start with maybe the person oh, yeah. completely stuck completely stuck. I don't know what to do. I have no idea. This problem is so big. And just by moving them to another chair and doing some of the compassionate imagery, that same person, you know, asking them what would, you know, if you had a wise, compassionate advisor come in, what would they say, can have a completely different experience and view and perspective on their problem. And it was, it's the exact same person that was here a minute ago. So it's, and it, what I really like about the, this work as well is that it really seems like it empowers the client to do the work that you're as a therapist you're not going in and telling them what's a rational thought or irrational thought but you're really helping them access resources and cultivate resources that are inside of them already absolutely you know one of the things what that that Paul Gilbert talks about quite a lot he'll he'll use the phrase intuitive wisdom and the idea is that we all have this vast reservoir of life experience. There's a lot of learning that, that we can draw upon in solving our problems. The tricky thing, though, is that when experiences of threat come up in us, that, that, that you know, in, in CFT, we have this three circles model of emotion that maybe we'll get to a little later. But one of those circles, one of those systems is a threat system. And it, it's how we evolve to respond very rapidly when our brain perceives a threat. And one of the ways that system works, which was very adaptive in keeping our ancestors alive in a world filled with really scary physical threats, is that when our threat system comes online and we feel angry or we feel anxious or afraid, uh, there's a dramatic narrowing 
of our attention and our thinking and reasoning and our imagering, imagery all to that, um, that perceived threat. It's almost impossible to, to pay attention to or think about anything else. I'm sure you've had a day like that where something happened in the morning that was really threatening to you. And for you know the rest of the day, you're trying to do other stuff. You're trying to think about other things, but your mind just keeps going back to that threat. And that's really what our brains were designed to do. And it helped keep our ancestors alive long enough to pass their genes along to us. Well, the compassionate self is very different. And one of the things that that compassionate version of the self, uh, what facilitates the arising of that compassionate version of the self is being able to access experiences of safeness. So we have practices like soothing rhythm breathing and different uh, imagery practices and things like that, which really are designed to help people connect with experiences of feeling soothed and safe. And that's not the goal of compassion-focused therapy, that we all just sit around feeling nothing but safe all the time. But the idea is that when those systems come online, they can help balance our emotional responding so that instead of being just completely captured by that narrow focus on whatever the perceived threat is, when we feel safe, actually something very different happens. And there's loads of research on this in, in various kind of areas of, of psychological science. But what we know is that when people feel safe, what happens is their attentional flexibility opens up. They're much able, more able to think very clearly and flexibly and reflectively. They're much more creative. And one of the nice things is that we, we also tend to be fairly pro-social and altruistic and compassionate. When we feel safe, in a vacuum, we tend to do pretty well. And one of the things that you were talking about there too is that when people feel safe, when they're in that spot where they're soothed and they're not feeling threatened, and the chair exercise is a wonderful way to help them kind of shift perspectives in that way, they're much more able to draw upon that intuitive wisdom that I was talking about earlier to really look back on their life experience and think, okay, what does my life tell me about what would be helpful in this situation? Can you speak to that three-circle diagram? Because you mentioned two of them. What's the, what's the third, or how does that work? The third we would call the drive and resource acquisition system, or drive circle. So the idea, if you look at what our ancestors needed to do to kind of stay alive long enough to pass their genes through the flow of life, they needed to rapidly identify and respond to, to threats to their lives, hence the threat system. They needed to acquire resources in terms of food, uh, shelter, but also social positions and mates, right? If you don't have a mate, you're not going to pass your genes forward. So we have these emotions and these, uh, these motives that are really designed around organizing us to pursue, to activate us to pursue goals, and then to reward us with positive feelings when we attain them. And so, of course, we've got lots of advertisers and video games are actually a perfect example of how our drive system can be harnessed and in some ways, some might argue, even work against us. So, you know, my, my son likes playing these video games. And whenever you play a video game, you know, you truck along for a while. And then you, once you get enough points or you, you do something, you go up a level. And so you get, you know, more powers or cooler costumes or things like this. And you get a little burst of dopamine and you're feeling some pleasure. And that keeps you playing more, right? It's these little bursts of reinforcement. And that's really what the drive system is designed to do. It's designed to keep us focused on goals, keeping moving toward them. And then when we achieve them, there's a kind of a rush of good feeling that we get. And so we want to, to continue on. And so the, the drive system is an interesting one 
in that we it, it tends to organize us in some ways similarly to how the threat system does, in that it does tend to involve a narrowing of thinking and attention. So if you reflect back on maybe the the first time you fell in love or when you were you were getting ready to close on your first home, when you were buying your first house, you might reflect on having days where you could, that's all you could think about, you know, was that other person or the house or whatever it is when your drive system is really going. Now, the good news about the drive system is that focus of the attention and thinking, because it tends to be on goals, usually uh, is a little more adaptive or at least feels a little better for us. Uh, the downside of it, of course, is that if we're too focused on our goals, on one specific goal, for example, other parts of our life can fall away. So we probably have uh, heard stories or know people or even maybe experienced times when we were so invested in our job or something else we were doing that we didn't take as good a care of our families as we might want to. Or, And of course, we have um, people who use various drugs to try to replicate the pleasurable sensations that tend to be associated with those drive responses. So uh, one of the things we also see is those first, those two systems, threat and drive, are highly interrelated. So you'll see that a lot of times, um, if we're pursuing a goal that we're really invested in and someone blocks our access or our progress toward that goal, that's perceived as a threat. And they can be perceived as a threat. So that, that can create a lot of friction between us. Um, we also sometimes see people use drive pursuits to avoid or to regulate threat experiences. So people who have a lot of threat in their lives, they throw themselves into pursuing a goal, right? Almost like single-mindedly, it can be used as a, a method of avoiding some other things in our lives that aren't going the way we like or that, that feel very threatening. And so the third system, as I mentioned earlier, is the safeness system, which is really about um, feeling feeling safe and peaceful and content. And, you know, if we look at the animal world, we see that a lot of the time, if they're not actively fighting off a threat or actively pursuing a goal, they spend a lot of time just kind of laying around, not doing much, just kind of relaxing. And that's that's kind of a way to think about the safeness system. It kind of helps balance out the activation of the other two, but also is a lot more sustainable. The threat and drive responses both were really designed by evolution to be very rapid on, rapid off, right? There's a threat, we activate, respond to it. There's a goal, we activate and pursue it. And so what the soothing or safeness emotions do, that those feelings of peace and contentment are designed to help, you know, balance those out. And, you know, when we're not pursuing a threat or when we're not, uh, or rather fighting a threat or pursuing a goal, then those experiences allow us to kind of recharge and rejuvenate ourselves. Now, in CFT, as I said, the goal isn't that we only live in that safeness system because we need to be able to respond to threats. We need to be able to activate after goals. Rather, the, the focus is having a very flexible emotional response system that is able to meet the demands of whatever our environmental context give us. So if there's a real threat, we want to be able to activate and, and deal with it. If there's a real goal, we want to be able to activate and pursue it. And when we're not doing those things, we want to be able to relax and feel comfortable and, and be able to reflect on things like, what do I care about? You know, what do I want my life to be about? What are the things that matter to me? You know, what do I want to give? How do I want to contribute to the world? You know, and so that flexibility is, is really uh, the goal here in terms of those three systems. 
because if our threat system and drive system are overactivated, that's what we can't sleep at night. We can't, you know, be present at our kids' play and, and be able to just enjoy the play because you're so caught in your own head about the work that you're doing or the things that you're afraid of. And you talk about in your workbook a bit about looping and the looping mind going around and around. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, that's one of the things about having a human life that is very, very tricky. So the reason that we, we have all these problems if our threat responses continue for long, long periods of time. And actually, there's data. If you look in these different bodies of science, we see that actually it takes a terrible toll on people. So, for example, if you look at things like trait hostility, which I think is a good kind of analog for someone who's kind of in threat all the time or acting out of threat. Well, trait hostility is, is linked with like much earlier mortality. You die younger if you're walking around with this all the time, right? And I think one of the reasons we see these negative effects of being in threat or being drive all the time is, is, again, they were designed by evolution to be very rapid on, rapid off. They weren't designed to be these long, sustained experiences. And that's how they work in just about every other animal on the planet. You know, when another dog wanders into my backyard, my dog will have a threat response and she may bark a little bit or get scared and, and kind of cower for a bit. But when the other dog wanders off, She's fine. You know, five minutes later, she's great. You know, me, if someone, you know, came into my house, you know, just wandered in, you know, and, and then finally left, I'd probably, you know, five minutes later, five hours later, five days later, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, where'd they come from? Why'd they come in? What if they come back? What could they have done? Right. Um, and so so the idea is uh, in CFT, one of the things we, we talk about is, is kind of old brain, new brain stuff. And of course, this is a dramatic oversimplification of how things actually work in the brain. But the idea is that if we look at the, the, the brain systems that have to do with our emotional responses, you know, they're very ancient systems and they, they work, as far as we can tell, fairly similarly in us as they work in, in many other animals. And they're very powerful organizers of our experience in, in very much the way I was talking about before in terms of how we pay attention, how we feel and what we think and all that stuff. The difference between us and, you know, uh, my dog Gwen and when another dog wanders into the backyard is that unlike Gwen, I also have all this fancy new brain architecture that allows me to do things like mental time travel to imagine uh, what's going to happen in the future or to reflect on the past. I can assign meaning to things. I can, uh, found any number of ways. I can imagine what could have happened. I can play out infinite dark scenarios in my mind. And part of the problem with kind of the, the ancient, more ancient emotional architecture in the brain is that those structures, like the, you know, the amygdala, I think is a good example of, of those, um, they're, as far as we can tell, they're not very good at distinguishing between real threats, real things that happen from us, you know, it happened to us coming in from the outside environment and the images and the thoughts that we produce in our own brains. And so unlike my dog, I can keep my threat system going almost indefinitely by generating really threatening imagery and, and pictures and uh, thoughts and all that stuff in, in my mind. The way I make sense of things, I can sustain that experience of threat almost indefinitely. And if we look at a lot of the psychotherapy clients that we come across, that's exactly what we see. 
Right. And we also have the option of looking at our phones to activate our threat system all day long. Just refresh your feed and our threat system can be activated as well. <laughs> so it, uh, it makes sense that we've been all practicing our threat system and, our, and then our society overstimulates our drive system that maybe we need to practice developing and cultivating another system, the soothing system. Absolutely. Now, that can be tricky because the soothing system, really, if you look at how human beings were designed to feel soothed and safe evolutionarily, it's really through affiliation. It's really through connection with people who accept us and like us and value us. That's how we'll tend to feel safe. And developmentally, if things work as they should, that's how we will tend to feel safe. But what happens is if you've had experiences of being traumatized or hurt by other people, or if, you know, the people who were there and were supposed to care for you when you were very young weren't able to do that, right? They weren't able to be there and, and help you feel soothed consistently. You can have someone who actually doesn't feel soothed through connection with others. And if it's someone who's been hurt, they can feel very threatened by that connection. And, and so that can make it very difficult. And that's actually a situation that we as psychotherapists really have to pay a lot of attention to. When the, the stuff that evolutionarily is designed to help us feel safe, the connection that's designed to help us feel safe, instead becomes linked with threat, then, then how do we feel safe at all? That's very tricky. I think it's also one of the reasons that right now is a very tricky time to be I would say in the world, but particularly in the United States, because unfortunately, the way our political reality has has shaped up over the last couple decades, um, there's there's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of interpersonal threat. There's a lot of feeling alienated, feeling different, feeling separate from, and you know those are things that kind of undermine our ability to to feel safe. So I think you know. One of the things that we have to do are find ways to, when we're working with clients, to detoxify uh, the experience of connection so they can learn to feel safe with us. But I think for all of us in the world, we, we need to, to find ways to find common linkages between us. To, to, well, I mean, one of the tricky things about our brain, quite frankly, if you look at the oxytocin research, most probably listening to your podcast will be familiar with oxytocin as a chemical that's released and promotes feelings of connection and bonding. And it does that. But the newer research on oxytocin shows that even oxytocin, the way it works, is very tricky. It turns out that when there's a release of oxytocin in the brain, we feel more connected to our people. And if there's an outgroup, if there's an other, then actually simultaneously, we feel less trusting. We feel more cynical about the other. Think about that. That is so screwy. Even the chemicals that help us feel connected drive division between us if there's a they, if there's an other. So I really feel if we're going to have productive work around solving problems of, you know, this political divide, racism and sexism and all these problems we have that have their roots in divisions between people, We've got to find ways to expand we to include everybody, right? To see the things that connect us, to see the kind of common elements of humanity and 
to find the parts we agree on and, and build out from there. And I think compassion can help us do that because we all suffer. We all only want to be happy. We all want to not suffer. And, and we can connect on many different areas. And if we can do that and then learn to feel safe with each other, I think all the other differences can be overcome. But it's very tricky when you've got these brains that are sort of biased towards identifying threats and, quite frankly, to grouping people into safe, unsafe, my people, those people, friend, enemy, right? They were designed, we were really designed to adapt to high threat environments, right? Our ancestors weren't kept alive by their ability to adapt to, to safe environments. And so we've got to find ways to do that. But that's one of the nice things about these, the kind of new brain stuff that we can do. We can think about those. So whatever our divisions are, we can choose to focus on the, the things that unite us and build out from there, right? But we've got to connect with the compassionate motivation that would make us want to do that. And your workbook for therapists is really designed to to walk therapists through that process, not only with their with their clients, but really starting with themselves. Can you talk a little bit about the, the book that you have coming out and how you have framed it and why you did it that way? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, I think, you know, a few years ago, I wrote a book called CFT Made Simple, which was really the first English language book that was designed to teach therapists, here's how you do CFT. Here's what it looks like in the therapy room. And and that was kind of the focus to try and give people a sense of here that if you want to do CFT, here's kind of a way of organizing what you do, and some suggestions for how you might go about doing it. Um, if you go to very many CFT trainings, and it's not just CFT, uh, probably any mindfulness-based treatment or treatment that involves mindfulness and things like this, you'll hear the same thing. You'll hear people say, don't try and teach mindfulness and compassion if you don't practice it yourself. Right? And that's not people trying to be exclusionary. It's just that if you don't practice it yourself, you don't get the nuances of it, right? It's hard to really understand how it works if it's not something you've practiced yourself. Um, and so my friend, James Bennett Levy, who is an Australian psychologist, and quite frankly, I think is the world's probably premier expert on self-practice, self-reflection. For many years now, James has been thinking about how do we learn therapy models from the inside out? How do we learn how to do therapy uh, or by practicing what we're, teaching our clients on ourselves. And so he had approached me uh, two and a half, three years ago, um, right as I actually was finishing up writing CFT Made Simple. And he approached me, he said, I've got this series, the From the Inside Out series. Would you be interested in being basically the lead author on a CFT volume of the series? And I had already literally done online trainings that were called CFT from the inside out. So I was just really excited to hear about that. And so the idea is that, it, you know, in CFT, there's a lot of things we're trying to do with our clients. There's a lot of things we're trying to form certain relationships with them that will facilitate their experience of social safeness. We're trying to help them make these compassionate kind of not your fault realizations. We're helping them learn these different compassion practices and the imagery practices and the breathing practices and mindfulness and all these different things. And so what we did with the Experiencing Compassion-Focused Therapy from the Inside Out book is to, to try and structure – it's basically a workbook 
that systematically leads people through these different practices and then prompts them to reflect both on their own experience of the practice, but also how they could translate their own experience into you know, what would be helpful in using with their own therapy clients. And, and so that's really the goal. The idea that for, for me, I saw that as being a nice companion volume to CFT Made Simple. You, you, you read one and you learn, okay, this is kind of how you do the therapy or how you begin to approach it. And then this is how it feels and this is what it's like. And this is how it can be helpful, at least for me, by, by having people practice it uh, on themselves. And I think in doing that, you learn the nuances of it. I think you learn the, the bits that are important. What I loved about it, because I've been working through it myself, is finally I get a workbook that I'm actually writing in. Because most of the time I get these workbooks. I like actually prefer workbooks when I'm, when I'm reading about a you know, topic. And then I will use it with a client. But uh, this one is for me. So I get to actually write out my answers in, as opposed to keeping it blank and just thinking about yeah. it. And I... Uh, it really enhances the experience by doing the, the, the noticing writing, writing exercises after you've done whatever the content of the, the practice is. And I'm really enjoying it. And I like the idea that you talk about in the beginning where you could do this in pair work with another therapist, yeah. like a peer coaching um, program, which would be even more powerful, I think, to have a yeah. consultation group working through it together or in pairs. I, I really feel like this SPSR model is a, a great match for compassion-focused therapy. And I want to highlight the things you were just talking about. That's all James Bennett Levy. He really has spent years figuring out what kinds of questions do you ask to really help people go deep in their reflection. And then he talks about something called reflective bridging, where you're bridging from the personal practice to the therapy room and the application of it. And it was very important uh, James and I both felt very strongly that although certainly I, I think that people will benefit from going through the workbook on their own, we really wanted to encourage people to, to think about doing it in pairs or in small groups, because I think that only multiplies the the effect of it. Wonderful. So I'm I'm glad that you picked up on that. And again, James has done so much work over so many years to figure out not only is it helpful for therapists to do self-reflective, self-practice work? But how do you structure that in a way that is likely to be the most helpful? Great. And so that we really tried to, to draw upon that in this book. So the workbook, Experiencing Compassion-Focused Therapy from the Inside Out, a self-practice, self-reflection workbook for therapists, as well as CFT Made Simple are available on Amazon. And you can pick those up there. And if you want to learn more about Dr. Colt's I'll be putting some links to his, his website as well as his TED Talk on our website uh, as well as links on this podcast. I would love to just, in sort of closing, to hear your thoughts on where you think the field of psychology is going. Well, you know, I'm excited about the field of psychology. I think we're at a really cool place uh, in, the, in the history of the field because we've had all these different bodies of science that I think for many years have been operated, operating kind of in isolation that have gotten to the point now where uh, there's some convergence taking place, but also we're, we're learning more about not just um, the therapy models that seem to be helpful or not, but the processes that they target. Um, I want to, to 
to give, a, I guess, a little bit of a plug. Steve Hayes recently, who probably many of your listeners will be familiar with, has, has been talking about how he sees the future of the field not being based in discrete therapy models, but in basically ways of doing psychotherapy that are anchored to evidence-based process interventions. So targeting specific psychological processes like mindfulness, for example, or psychological flexibility, or dare I say, compassion, right? I think the literature is beginning to support the idea that compassion will be one of those processes that we'll see will be important to target. And in fact, Steve and Stefan Hoffman recently uh, wrote a book that is, as I think it's called something like a process-focused approach to cognitive behavior therapy. And I, I agree with Steve wholeheartedly here. I think as a field, it's very exciting to me, the idea that we would move beyond a, a model of competing therapy models and to one where we kind of step back a moment and take a look at broadly what we know is most helpful to people in dealing with emotional difficulties and what, what processes do we need to target to, to help people the best way we can. And I, I, I do think I, I'm optimistic and hopeful that that will be the future of the field. Um, and I'm excited about that, actually. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Colts. I really appreciate it. It was a delight to have you and a real honor to have you on our show. And I hope that you uh, continue to do the work that you're doing. And I'm sure we'll continue to hear about the work you're doing. And just really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Diana. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.